Well, thank you, Ben, for your sharing and presentation to us about your ministry in the Czech Republic. We thank you, uh, Thomas, um, Kelly, Susan, and Donna for your work in the Czech Republic. What an encouraging report of what God, what God has done and then through their lives. Pastor Peter Smith emailed me a few days ago just telling me what a great job he did, how encouraged he was, as well as his family, and how just um, God was mildly faithful in their service there. Uh, we are, I am personally so encouraged. This is what it's all about. Proclaiming the gospel to the lost. Um, striving to win the lost to Christ. And to have you guys come back with such a great report. We just uh, rejoice with you. We expect with this great privilege of going to missions overseas. It's a great responsibility that you will uh, meet up to that challenge and faithfully serve the Lord throughout your throughout your lives. I was talking to some of them and they expressed desire wanting to go back. I think it was Thomas. He said he didn't want to come back. He wanted to stay. And he asked me um, if he can go again. I said definitely so. Um, you know, we plan to send out a yearly team to the Czech Republic as well as Ireland as well as other opportunities throughout the world that God might open up to us. I'd encourage you guys to be in prayer today as to um, your participation in that in terms of serving the Lord overseas. Well, let's get to John chapter 6. Um, because of our presentation today, we have a shorter time than usual in the Word of God, but time never stopped me before, so we'll see what happens. <clears throat> we're at John chapter 6. Um, if you remember last week, we're at the high point of our Lord's ministry, uh, feeding of the 5,000. That was in the midst of His great Galilean outreach. Uh, scores of people. We find out 20,000 plus men, women, and children. Uh, scores of people represented by every category in Israel were coming after him. I mean, it was really a mob mentality in terms of people pursuing Christ. So much so that the Pharisees said to one another in John 12:19, Look how the whole world has gone after him. I mean, it seemed like everybody was following Christ. Now, in this great outreach in the Galilee, Galilean area, Galilee area, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 was the zenith in terms of his ministry. It propelled him to the height of his popularity. It was by far, of all his miracles that he had performed, uh, it was by far his most public miracle. It directly impacted over 20,000 people. I mean, I, my sense was, Maybe just, uh, it was at a fever pitch. The energy of that group, it was like maybe a rock concert. I mean, that kind of energy, that kind of just heightened excitement as the people gathered to partake of this miracle and to hear his teaching. Well, because of this, our Lord was now a celebrity. I mean, he was a superstar, a household name, if you will. He was at the height of his popularity. And you and I have heard this. It is said that success changes people, right? We read about in the news, we watch maybe TV shows, and we hear that success changes people. Well, we need to wonder, did this newfound fame uh, in any way affect our Lord? Did it change Him? Did thousands of people clamoring for His attention um, change His message, change His ministry? What effect was there, if any, was there in having 20,000 people following after him? 
what we see from today's passage and rest of chapter 6 and rest of the Gospel of John, that it didn't change him one bit. It had absolutely zero effect on his character, on his conduct, and his message. In fact, his character and message were unmoved not just during his times of trial when he was being persecuted by the Jewish leaders, but unmoved during the times of even success, as we see in John chapter 6. We find, and we are so impressed, so stirred, that he didn't compromise. He didn't lower his standards. He didn't adjust his message to suit their tastes. Instead, he again took this unique opportunity to declare his identity and his mission. And one of the first things he did when he addressed the masses, one of the first things he did was he addressed their motivation. He addressed their motivation. Instead of buying into their flattery, he kind of lifted the veil and revealed the real reason that they were following after him. He rebuked them. He confronted them. He challenged them. He corrected them because they're motivated not because of the right things, but because of selfish reasons. And that is so significant for us. I mean, we'll get to this later on, but in terms of our own walk, I mean, talking about our motivation and coming to church on Sunday, coming to flock, studying the Bible, pursuing Christ. It's so significant that the first thing Christ addressed was motivation. Important for you, important for me. And also in our ministry, as we, as they went to Czech Republic, as we do ministry, as we proclaim the gospel to the world, it's important that we address the issue of motivation, that we don't tie any uh, prizes before them, tempting them to follow Christ for any other reason except Christ Himself. Does that make sense? We need to make sure that people's motivations are right as we minister the gospel to the lost. Well, before we get into our study this morning, we need to do a brief study of the ge geography of Israel, uh, particularly the area of the Sea of Galilee. So if you have a good Bible, you will have a map of the Palestine area in the time of Christ. If you don't have a good Bible, well, you can share a good Bible from your neighbor. Uh, if it's the Word of God, it's a good Bible, but if it has a map, it's a little bit better. Um, well, if you have a map, you will see that the land of Israel is rather a small country. It is similar in shape. Now, not in land mass. California is larger, but in terms of shape, it is very similar to California. It is a, it is a long country. North and south is about 120 plus miles. Width, east to west, is about 50 miles. Uh, the southern, southern area is called Judea. The midsection lies Samaria, where Christ crossed to get to Galilee. The northern region is called the area of Galilee. And the most prominent geographical feature of that land is that Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee. It's also called the Lake Gennesaret. Also called the Sea of Tiberias. They are all talking about the same body of water. Now this lake, it is 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. It is a freshwater lake, a beautiful lake. Sir and I, we, we took a boat trip through that lake while we are in Israel. We actually, oh, I swam. Sir, did you go in the water? No, I, I swam in the Sea of Galilee, I had that unique 
uh, experience. It is a beautiful lake. It's comparable to Lake Tahoe in terms of just the scope, the size, and the beauty. Now, on the map, you might have noticed a city on the eastern shore of the lake, a city called Gergesa. That is viewed by many as the site where the Lord healed that gathering demoniac. Remember that? He had all these demons and he put them in pigs and the pigs uh, jumped off the cliff and died. Many believe that's the ancient city where that happened. Well, a little north of that city, on the eastern side, is where that miracle of feeding of the 5,000 took place. On the northeastern side. Right? It says in John 6.15, that Jesus withdrew to a mountain by himself in that area. And next day, verse 16, the disciples went, or that night, the disciples went down to the lake and they set off across the lake to Capernaum. And if you look at that map, Capernaum is on the northwestern side of that lake. Right? So that's what's going on. The miracle took place north of Geresa. Um, and the Lord sent the disciples across the lake, Sea of Galilee. They went down to the Capernaum area. And the dialogue that we find ourselves in chapter 6 is occurring on the northwestern side of Sea of Galilee. Just kind of get a geographical idea of where all of this is taking place. Well, now that we've kind of placed ourselves, let's go to chapter 6, verse 17. It is after the miracle, it is late at night, our Lord tells the disciples alone to set off across the lake for Capernaum. Capernaum was their home base in terms of their ministry. As they would go reach out to the varying areas, they would always come back often to Capernaum to regroup and send out, come back to Capernaum, regroup and send out. That was their home base. So Christ sent the disciples back to Capernaum and He wanted to be alone to be in prayer. Matthew 14.22 uh, the Synoptic Gospel, Matthew, his, his uh, Gospel tells us that the Lord directed the disciples to go so that he might be alone to pray and he dis as he dismissed the crowds. Now, in the middle of the night, our Lord noticed in verse 18 of chapter 6 that the disciples were caught in a severe storm. Uh, Mark 6.48 tells us that the storm was so intense that the disciples were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. They couldn't make any headway. They were stuck in the middle of the lake and couldn't get any headway to shore. Now our Lord, seeing this in the, in the fourth watch of the night, late in the evening, early morning, He was pressed by need. He was pressed by compassion for His disciples. He goes to them and He walks on the water and He goes out to the boat. In verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking in the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. Our Lord said, It is I, don't be afraid. They were willing, therefore, to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Miraculous walking on water and miraculous transportation of this boat to the shore immediately. Now, what is notable, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record feeding of the 5,000. Only Matthew, Mark, and John record Jesus walking in the water. What is most notable is that John only spends three verses in this miracle. Only three verses. John's account is the shortest of the three. He really 
pays little attention to this miracle. This incredible mind-boggling miracle is kind of a side note for John. And he moves on to the Lord's dialogue. Because again, as we said last week, the thrust of John's message in, in John chapter 6, the main point, the main theme of this chapter is not the feeding of the 5,000. It's not Christ walking on the water, but the words of Christ. The dialogue that Christ had with the crowds and with his own disciples. That's the main theme of John chapter 6. And John, as a great gospel writer, is highlighting that tension that exists in the world, in the Lord's ministry, and it exists today. The tension between signs and the words of Christ. The tension between the signs of Christ and the words of Christ. The crowds were fascinated with Christ's miracles, His wonders, His signs. They were fascinated. Who doesn't want a free meal? They're clamoring after Christ because he was giving out bread and fish. But when they heard the words of Christ, they rejected Christ. They wouldn't listen to his words. They were fascinated on one hand by his miracles, by his power. On the other hand, they were offended and put off by his teachings. That tension exists here. Christ, with every miracle gives his words, which offends his hearers. But notice verse 68. It is really paralleled with what Ben was talking about. How you would teach the word of God and it would draw some to Christ. At the same time, it would repel others. It would offend others away from Christ. While the masses are, are deserting Christ, what is Peter's confession in verse 68? Here is Peter seeing many of his friends, many disciples deserting Christ. And Peter does not say, you know, Christ asks Peter, are you going to leave too? Are the twelve of you going to desert me too? Peter does not say, to whom shall we go? You are the only worker of miracles. He does not say that. He doesn't say, to whom shall we go? You are the only one giving away free lunch. What does he say? He says, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Your words are life-giving words. What, what draws us to you is not your miracles. It's not the lunch. It's not you walking on water. What attracts us to you, what motivates us to follow you, uh, is that you teach the Word of God, that you are God, and you are teaching us the truth. While the words of Christ offended the masses, to those who were chosen by God, to those who were motivated by the right things, the same words to them and the true believers throughout the world, throughout history, are life-giving words. They give eternal life. That tension exists throughout this whole chapter. So John doesn't focus on feeding of the 5,000. He doesn't focus on Christ walking on the water. This is all historical context. This is all fluff in a sense. This is all background. The main picture, the main character, if you will, the main thrust is the Lord's words, starting in verse 26. Well, with that said, let's get to that historical context. Let's get to the passage. Look at verse 22. The next day, the day after, our Lord fed the 5,000. The crowd was perplexed. There was one boat that night. The disciples got on that boat and they saw Jesus stay behind. They saw the disciples leave. 
They saw Christ go up to the mountain to pray. They wake up in the morning and he's gone. And they have no idea where he went. To them, it was inconceivable that he would walk on water. They're just perplexed. Where did Jesus go? He was nowhere to be found. So they set off to Capernaum. They know that's his home base. In search of Christ. In verse 25, they find him and they ask the first of many questions. In John chapter 6, the first question is, Lord, Rabbi, Lord, curious in the Greek, Lord, when did you get here? When did you get here? It's an external um, expression of loyalty, of devotion, of commitment. Lord, we want to be with you. When did this happen? Why don't you wake us up? We would have woken up. We would have come with you. When did you get here? And our Lord, um, with the words from 26 to 29, we see five instructions of Christ to his followers. Five instructions. Now, I'm cutting it short. I'm only going to do one. But it's a long one. <laughs> I want to prepare you ahead of time. It's a long one, but I'm only going to do one. There are five instructions here. We're only going to look at the first one. The first one is importance of right motives. Importance of right motives. We should know right away in verse 26 that our Lord, he's a heart searcher. We should fear Christ. We should revere Him. We should treat Him with utmost respect and honor. Why? Because He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts, our ways, our plain view to God, to Christ. That's an amazing, almost a scary truth. And verse 26 reveals to us that He knows, He knows man. Like verse 15, Jesus knew that they wanted to make Him king. He knew they had an agenda for following him, so he withdrew himself from the masses. Again, verse 26, our Lord says, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. They had followed him across the lake of Galilee. From outward signs, they seemed ready to believe in him, to submit to his lordship. But our Lord knew the inward springs of their conduct. And our Lord was not deceived. He was not impressed by their outward earnestness. No way. He was not swayed by their flattering words. He knew full well the depth of hypocrisy that is rooted in the hearts of man. That, that we are sinful beings. They're wicked. We're wretched. That we're hypocrites to the core outside of Christ. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 33, 31 and 32. He says, My people come to you and sit before you to listen to your words, but they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. The hearts of men, they come to Christ as if Christ is singing a beautiful love song. He's an entertainer. He's a novelty. He's a vaudeville act. He's doing juggling acts. And they're watching him, and they're fasting about what he can do. But they're not interested in his words, because they're not intent on obeying his, his, his truth, his words. 
Our Lord does not naively buy into their shallow calls, their professions of loyalty and devotion. Instead, he confronts these people of their false motivations. Tells us that he is the heart searcher. That he knows all men's hearts. He says, I tell you the truth. And the, that's a, a Hebraic way of emphasizing a truth. In another version, if you have NASB or King James, you might say, truly, truly, I say to you, Christ is saying, this is truth. You can bank on it. 100% bona fide, guaranteed. I tell you the truth. You are seeking me not because you believe in me, but because you ate last night and you're hungry again. Right? You want seconds. You're hungry again. You want some more bread. You want some more fish. That is why you're seeking me. Your enthusiasm for me is based upon your own selfish desires. Your enthusiasm for me is based upon what I can do for you in terms of physical food, not spiritual food. What attracts you to me is not who I am, not my identity, not my authority. In your heart, you're not worshipping me, you're worshipping yourself. You are using me as a means for self-worship. Beloved brethren, fellow believers in Christ, we must never forget this truth. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As He knew plainly the motives and the intentions of these masses of people, He today knows us. He knows our motivations. He knows our intentions. He reads the secret motives of everyone who professes and calls themselves Christians. He knows exactly why they do what they do in their religion. He knows exactly why they go to church. Exactly why they pray. Exactly why they read the Bible and serve in the church. Today, as we come before Him, we need to understand that we are naked before Christ. That He is omniscient, with piercing eyes, eyes flame of fire. He reaches into the depths of our souls and He knows our motivations. By Him, all motives are weighed and seen. 1 Samuel 16, 7, God tells us, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Our Lord's perfect knowledge of the secret things is strikingly depicted in this passage. We cannot deceive Him, even if He wanted to, as we deceive man. We cannot. It is impossible. You know, in Christianity today, I hear a lot about Authentic Christianity. I don't know if you guys read like Christian magazines or Christian books. That's been a big thing for the past few years. Let's go for authentic Christianity. Let's be vulnerable. Let's be open. And what is authentic Christianity? It's not being real with one another. Right? Hey, let's be real. Right? Let's be vulnerable. Share your heart. I'll share my heart. Right? Let me, let me share my pain with you. No. That's not authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity is being real before Christ, the heart searcher. It is being true and sincere in our lives before God, 
knowing that he sees all, knowing that he knows all. It is, stop playing, it is to stop playing games with God of this sinful hypocrisy, living and acting as if Christ doesn't know, because we're fooling men. Listen, it is not hard to deceive me. It's easy. I am so gullible. I believe everything you say. You tell me something, I believe it. It's easy to fool me. It's easy to fool your friends. It's easy to fool the church. But it is impossible to deceive Christ. He knows and sees us through and through. Blessed are those who can say with Peter. What did Peter say in John 21, 17? Right, after he was humbled by denying the Lord three times, he is restored the third time. Christ says, do you love me? What does Peter say? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Man, what a confession. I mean, Peter I mean, made a lot of mistakes, sinned a lot, but for him to be able to say that, Lord, you know, I know you know. You're a heart searcher. My, my heart is clean, clear before your sight. You know my heart. You know that I love you. Blessed is a man or woman who can say that with a clear conscience. Our Lord rebukes these people because they were motivated by the wrong things. And He reveals what motivated them. Right? He just doesn't say, I know what, what's motivating you. He reveals it. He says, you searched for me. You followed me here. Not because you believed in me, but because you ate and you're hungry again. You just want more food. It is a sad exposure of, of the true reason why so many profess to be Christians. And what, in America, 100 million Christians? One again, is that right? Professing believers in America? Right? Why would people profess to be Christians? Why, why would people attend church if they're not Christians? Why would people pray and read the Bible and even serve in the church if they're not Christians? Christ tells us here the reason why. They're motivated by selfish interests. Right? As if for them, it was to be fed again. But in a sense, it goes to their own gratification. They want to be satisfied to some level. These are carnal motives which induce these people to follow Christ are painfully exhibited here. It was to gratify themselves. It was self-worship. It was not Christ. You know, it reminded me of, of um, the Enron scandal that's going on. You guys, it's all over the news. If you guys don't know, then you guys don't know. You guys are out of it. Um, you guys know about these executives. They're telling their own employees Right? Not their competitors, but their own employees to buy the stock while they were dumping the stock on the side. I read this on Newsweek a few weeks ago. But in 1999 and 2000, Merrill Lynch stock analysts were telling their clients to buy certain stocks. And at the same time, they were emailing one another. This is trash. This is junk. This is worthless. At the same time, they gave it a strong buy rating, telling their clients to buy a certain stock so they would get some fees from this transaction. These emails were subpoenaed by the New York State Attorney General and one of the stocks that they recommended was WorldCom. Right, you guys know WorldCom, they are either they file for bankruptcy or they are filing tomorrow for bankruptcy. 
At the time they said strong buy, it was 88% below their peak. And yet they were recommending it to their own clients. Well, we find out that these analysts, they were not serving the best interests of the clients and the customers. They were in it for themselves. They were recommending stock to retirees, to people who needed this money desperately, just for their own pocket, for their own benefit. Well, same thing is happening with these people. These people are saying, they are seeking Christ not to honor Christ, not to serve Christ, not to glorify Christ, but to serve themselves. Serve themselves. You know, let me just talk about you guys. Talk about myself a little bit tonight, this morning. We need to ask these questions about ourselves. Why are we following Christ? Why are you at church? Why do you come to church? Why do you... Why do you do all that you do and profess to be Christians? Are, are you seeking Christ for selfish motivations? Are, is Christ a means to an end, earthly happiness? Is Christ a means to a happy family? Is it because it feels good? When you come to church, when you, when you worship, hear the word, it feels good. Is it just personal morality? Is it some kind of personal gain in your life? If that, if, if any of those things are what motivates you in your Christian life, I'm afraid. I'm not a prophet or anything, by no means. But I'm fairly certain that you have a very short Christian life ahead of you. That not only will you be at Cornerstone for only a short time, you'll only be in the church, capital C, for a short time. Because such motivations do not endure. They are passing they are momentary. Look at these people. One day. Their devotion lasted one day. They eat bread miraculously. Right? Yesterday. Next day. One day. They're fickle. Here today. Gone today. Not here today. Gone tomorrow. Same day. They're gone. Why? They're motivated by the wrong things. The only way you will endure if, is if you're motivated solely for God and His glory. That's why the Lord does not want hasty decisions. He does not want impulsive decisions. Luke 14, 28 through 33, he says, Before you follow me, consider, do I have enough materials to build? Before you follow me, consider, do you have enough men to win this war? Consider your life, your motivations, before you follow Christ. Having, a right, having right motivations is not, is not just important in the Christian life. It is so important in ministry. In the ministry of Christ. Right. Listen to what Paul has to say in Philippians 2, 20 and 21. He's talking about Timothy. He's recommending Timothy to the church at Philippi. Now Timothy is not a dynamic speaker. He's not a charismatic leader. He's not an aged wise a man. He's a young lad, struggling with inadequacy, struggling with self-doubt. But he affirms Timothy by saying this, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Verse 21, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Everyone looks out for themselves not those of Christ. Now that verse to me is disturbing, but it's so instructive. 
It tells me that every believer to some degree is polluted with selfishness in ministry, that no one is perfectly said with a pure motivation of serving the Lord, that we all to some degree is, is polluted by self-centered motivations. No one is innocent. Timothy is a model for us as we serve in the ministry to look out, have an interest for the Lord's welfare and not ourselves. Not ourselves. Well, just some closing thoughts. I think I kept my promise and kept it short. Um, lack of time, so we'll just close our time with some few thoughts. Um, how can you know your motives? Your motives are real, you know, I don't know what the word is, but hard to like, hard to discover, hard to nail down. But how can you know if you have right motives or wrong motives? Maybe three things that maybe will help you to think through your motivations. Number one, if the words of Christ offend you, you're motivated by the wrong things. Period. If you read the Bible and the words of Christ offend you, stumble you, if biblical preaching disturbs you, angers you, frustrates you, you're not motivated to please Christ. You're here for yourself. You have an agenda. You want your life to be a certain way. And anything that gets in the way of that plan, you get, you get offended. You get hurt. You get angry. And if the words of Christ are messing up your life, messing up your plans, then that's a big neon sign. You're motivated by wrong things. If you don't repent, if you don't change, you're going to have a short Christian life. I have no problem preaching strongly. I have no problem. People say I preach harshly. As long as they're consistent with the Word of God, I have no problem. If I'm preaching outside of Scripture and you're offended by me, I apologize. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. I never intend to offend needlessly. But if the words of Christ offend you, if it offends me, it's not the messenger. It's not the message. It's the recipient. Because the motivation is wrong. Secondly, um, is there a great divide between your public life and your heart? I mean, we all do, but is there a great chasm that separates what's going on in your heart and what's going on externally? Right? To that degree, you're motivated by the wrong things. Because the Christian life is not external, it's internal. It's all about the heart. It's all about the spirit. It's all about our personal walk, our, our spiritual walk before Christ. It really has little to do with our external performance. If you have calloused your heart, where um, living in hypocrisy, you're getting really, you're like a professional at it, right? Like no one has no idea what's in your heart, has no idea what's going on because. You know, you should get an academy for this. You know, you should win an Emmy. They're just so, such a pro. That's a sign. That should trouble you. Because you're, you're, you're telling yourself that, first of all, you deny the omniscience of Christ. You're saying Christ doesn't know. Second, you're living for man. You're not living for Christ. You're living for people. You're not living for Christ. And what's that in the Christian life? What is that? Right? Third thing, and it's tied to our next study because Christ, point two is, do not labor for food that spoils. Here they are, they wake up five in the morning, 
I mean, it's cold. They don't sleep in. They're looking all over Galilee. They get in the boat. They're rowing across miles of miles in, in, in the uh, lake, and they search for Christ, and they finally find him. And they're laboring all this for food. And Christ says, "Labor not for food that spoils, but labor for food that endures to eternal life." The third thing that I reveal wrong motive is that you are tireless, tirelessly expending yourself for food that spoils. I mean, you are giving time, energy, and effort in your career, in your house, in your sports, in your hobby. Right? I mean, you're giving it all towards work, all towards friendships, all towards, I don't know, personal improvement, self-improvement. I mean, excellence is important to you. And yet at the same time, you're not laboring for spiritual food. The Word of God, you can take it or leave it. Haphazard study the Word of God, it's alright. If I hear the sermon and I understand it, it's okay. If I, if I don't, if I miss church here and there, it's okay. If I miss you know, my prayer time, my devotions, very just haphazardly laboring for spiritual food, that's a sign that you're motivated by the wrong things. Because if you're motivated for, for the glory of Christ, everything else is small stuff. Like career, house, sports, entertainment, having fun. That's the fluff. The main thing is pursuing Christ. That's my labor. That's my work. That's my vocation, calling in life. To know Christ and to make Him known. Well, how can you be motivated by right things? Just three quick things. How can... Okay, James, you know, I found some things that are troubling to me. I myself, as well as I studied this passage, how can I be motivated by the right things? I just thought of three things. Number one, it helps me when I meditate on my own wretchedness. When I meditate on what a wretched sinner I was and how undeserving, unworthy I was of Christ's love and how He saved me out of the pit and the mire, then my motivations come around. It helps me my motivations. Number two, meditate on the grace of Christ. The mercy of our Lord. He should have judged us. He should have condemned us. He should, he should have put us in the darkest pit of hell. Instead, He sends His own Son to die on the cross for our sins in our place. He forgives us of all our sins. He calls us His children, His sons, makes us co-heirs with Christ, and He promises us inheritance in heaven. Meditate on the mercy of Christ, the grace of Christ. That helps me, my compass, to point to true north again in terms of my motivations. And thirdly, meditate on the worthiness of Christ to receive all glory. Meditate on the worthiness of Christ to receive all glory. That He is worthy of our lives, worthy of our service, worthy of our, of our discipleship, to be called our Lord. Brothers and sisters, as we study through the Gospel of John, it is my prayer that our pursuit of Christ will not be motivated by such things as, but motivated these, this crowd, that our pursuit of Christ be motivated by God and His grace. Let us pray.